Good morning. Majoring on minors and minoring on majors gets us into trouble spiritually. If you look at the history of the church and try to find why so many divisions, why so many splits, why so many different denominations, what you find is this, minoring on major issues and majoring on minor issues. Toward the end of his letter to the Corinthians, Paul shifts from minor issues to major ones from concerns about hairdos and head coverings to concerns about the Lord's Supper, from minor theological issues to major ones, the resurrection of Christ being among the major ones. Look what it says, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11, as we continue on through this letter for three more weeks after today. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, So we preach, and so you believed. We'll attempt to answer a question this morning. Why is it important to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? All of us understand that it's one of those doctrines, one of those beliefs that is at the center of being a Christian. So what we'll try to do is figure out why, why? Why is it necessary to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? We still have miracles. We still have ways to live. We still have claims, and that's what we'll look at. Paul begins with the facts of the gospel. Again, let's remind ourselves of what those are, and again, I'll read them again. I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And what Paul does, he he brings us to a bunch of historical facts. These aren't just things to, they are things to believe, but they are facts. They are things that he state really occurred. And he goes on. He appeared. The word for appeared there, it has to do with seeing. Jesus appeared to people following his death. It goes on. He appeared to Cephas, you know, the name for Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, 
he appeared also to me. Um, there are those who call Christ's death into question, which historically is not very tenable. It just doesn't make sense. He died on the cross. Some indicate that he passed out. You know, and then he came back to life in the coolness of the tomb. It just doesn't make much historical sense. But some people call that into question. Some people call his resurrection from the dead into question. What we know is that the tomb was guarded by a contingent of Roman soldiers, each one which could protect three to five square feet from invading armies. And so what we're to believe, some would indicate that the disciples stole the tomb, wielding fishes. You know, these guys are wielding, you know, you've seen the gladiator movies, and so, you know, the disciples come out with fishes, but and they can't defend themselves from the disciples who steal the body, take it away. It's just, it's just not tenable historically. Or that Jesus, there's a big one to two ton stone against the face of this cliff that it, it seals off the tomb. There is a Roman seal that somehow Jesus comes to life in the tomb, and he's wrapped, he unwraps himself, gets his head, and he kind of moves the stone out to the side, one to two stones. And then he dodges the Roman soldiers, and, then, and he appears to the disciples as the Lord of life. It, no, they see him, and they are convinced that something miraculous had happened. So we know, from a historical perspective, these things really occurred. Jesus died, he was raised, and people saw him. Paul, at the time Paul wrote, there were witnesses to the resurrection. Um, some of the apostles were still alive. Peter was still alive at the time that Paul was writing this letter. John is still alive. Some others were alive as well. But there are 500 who saw Jesus at one time. And Paul understands that now some decades later, some of them are still alive uh, throughout history. People claim to have seen visions and received revelations from Jesus or angels or stuff from heaven. Apostles were unique in that Jesus actually appeared to them after the resurrection. And this is not just visions and dreams. That's the significance. When Jesus appeared to the disciples, he said, Put your finger in my side. Touch me. See me. Hear me. I am not a vision. I have risen from the dead. And the disciples saw him, and 500 saw him at one time. This wasn't a spiritual vision that each individual experienced. Some people have these visions, but not at one time, not 500 at one time. They saw him. actually appeared. Some had fallen asleep. This figure for sleep figure of sleep for death implies that these ones who fell asleep in Jesus, believing in Jesus, woke up with God in heaven, which becomes our hope. When we die, the next thing we're conscious of is waking up to the place that we had always hoped for, but perhaps never really believed would get to, and that's heaven with him. Paul presents these witnesses as links in a chain. And he says, okay, from Peter to the 12 and to 500 and to James and to uh, the apostles and to Paul himself, Paul sees himself as the last in the link of the chain of apostles. He writes in a culture 
and an environment in which visions and dreams and ecstatic experiences weren't unusual at all. A bunch of people claiming to have had visions, and Jesus told me this and told me that. Um, Paul identifies himself as the last of all, indicating for us that with him something ceases that had occurred, Jesus appearing to people in a physical form. Paul is the last one to whom this privilege was given. And he was designated by Jesus as an apostle. Jesus communicated to him, this is the message I want you to deliver to Gentiles. And we are here understanding this message because Jesus appeared to Paul and he told him to tell those to told us who, and we are the last in this chain. Um, and it will continue to go on. Um, Paul connects the readers to the chain of these resurrection witnesses, and he says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Okay. The resurrection of Christ is a historical fact. He died on the cross, and he went into the tomb. He wasn't resuscitated by the coolness of the tomb. He was raised from the dead, and he appeared to people, and is with the Father. Jay pointed out he's alive. Um, why, why is it important that we believe this? It's important that we believe it, but how would you answer that question? Why? Why do we need to believe this? Um, the most common answer I hear, and it's true, and the way it's applied, well, be, it's important to believe that Jesus rose from the dead because that proves that he's God. I think that makes sense, doesn't it? If he dies and stays dead, he's not God. But if he dies and rises, that proves he is God. Okay, why does Jesus need to be God? Um, the, the answer I hear most often, and perhaps you do, is it's so, it's important, because that means that Jesus can be punished in our place. That's why it's important to believe that Jesus is God, so that we can believe that Jesus is punished in our place. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that I don't think that's the best answer, but let's develop the answer. It's what I hear a lot. Um, he can be our substitute. And if Jesus is God, he can be our substitute. He can stand in for us. We sin. We deserve to die. Jesus can take our place. He's perfect. He's a perfect sacrifice, divine and human. And so he needs to be God so that he can take the wrath of the Father against sin so that we don't have to. Um, that's an answer given and it, it yeah, so what about that? Uh, as the argument goes, God punished Jesus in our place. His love for man and hatred for sin presents a problem. How can I accept humans who sin when I hate sin, but I love humans? So how can God reconcile these aspects of his character? And as the thinking goes... Um, by punishing Jesus, who is human and divine, both aspects of God's character are satisfied. His love is satisfied. His anger is satisfied. It, again, is this something, you've heard this, 
It's the answer I hear most often. Um, why does Jesus need to be God? So that God can punish himself as our substitute. This answer, this understanding is not without difficulties. God inflicts pain on himself in the form of his son. Again, God inflicts pain on himself in the form of sacrificing his son in order to deal with conflicts within him. His love and wrath are against each other. And the way he deals with that is by punishing or killing his son. Doesn't that turn God into a cutter? You know what a cutter is? It's a person who experiences strong and strong emotional pain, internal conflictedness. It's so severe and so intolerable that they take a blade or a knife. Some of you might have heard about this and cut themselves. And in cutting themselves, it somehow reconciles the internal conflictedness. If God has to punish his son to reconcile his internal conflictedness, doesn't that turn him into a cutter? Question. And then, if he punishes his son in our place talked about this before, then individuals killed Jesus, but ultimately it had to be him. He wipes blood off his hands and he extends his hand to you and says, welcome to the family. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, is there another answer to the question, why is it important to believe that Christ was raised from the dead? Is there another answer other than he can be our substitute? And I think there is. He can be our representative. Not our substitute. Our representative. What does that mean? Okay, look what it says. Look at this verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we become the righteousness of God. Christ becomes sin. The Bible says sin is lawlessness. So sin is defined as covenant violations. Jesus becomes lawlessness. He becomes sin. Why is the resurrection important? It's tied to this question. What does God do with the lawless? How many people here have sinned? What does God do with sinners who sin underneath law? That's a good question, isn't it? Something that we'd like to get a handle on. Um, you know what the answer is? What God does with the lawless because Jesus represents sin and he represents lawlessness? What does God do with lawlessness? He raises it from the dead and brings it to himself. How many here are lawless? You can look at the cross and see what happens and guess what? There's hope for us. Because Jesus represents lawlessness, and that's what God does with lawlessness as defined by the commandments. He raises 
the laws. Again, Jesus represents lawlessness. He became sin. Uh, that's what I think this indicates. Um, why is the resurrection important? We are sinful and lawless. Jesus represents sinfulness. He represents lawlessness. What does God do with the lawless? He raises them from the dead. How do we know that God raises the lawless from the dead? How do we know? How can we be sure? Because the tomb was empty. Christ was raised from the dead. He represented lawlessness. So our hope is based in concrete historical fact. Yeah. You know it's like? Some of you golf, right? You golf, and when the ball is, you've got a putt, and you have to move your ball because somebody's ball is further away from the cup than yours, but it's in the same line. And so you take your ball and mark it, and then you go and you do something else, right? Absolutely not. You're going to go to school on that person's putt. They're right in the line that you are. So they're going to putt it, and you're going to look at that thing, and you're going to say, I wonder if that's going to bend this way or that way, because you know you've got the same putt. And so you go to school. You watch carefully. We are sinful and lawless. Jesus became lawlessness, so we're going to look at him lawless and say, I wonder what happens to people like him. And again, he didn't do anything wrong. Jesus never sinned, but he represented sin. He became sin, right? That's what it says, represented it. So now we're going to look at that, and we're going to pay careful attention, are we not? What happens to people? And you know what happens? God raises them from the dead. And when we believe in Christ, what's true of Jesus becomes true of us. And through faith in Christ, guess what you're waiting for? For what happened to Jesus to happen to you? How can you know it's going to happen? How can you know that when you die, you'll go to be with him? Can you know that? The tomb was empty. They tried to look for it. He wasn't there. You know what that tells us? We're going to the same place. And it's based historically because Jesus represents sin. That's really good news. Look what it says, for all who rely on works of the law, Galatians 3, are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. I looked at this once and I said, what, what is this? So cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Underneath or under law, somebody who is hung on a tree is accursed. So what this text indicates is that Jesus became accursed. Now, we never did anything wrong, but everyone hung on a tree is cursed. So the cross represents a tree, and then that, because he is hanging, that means Jesus represents being cursed. Now, he represents being cursed, because he's hanging on a tree. You and I are cursed because it says, cursed is everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law to do them. If you have slipped up in just one thing, and coveting is wrong, 
We're cursed. How many of you are cursed? Come on, get your hands up. Again, it's, I'm not throwing a rock, but based on the definition, cursed is everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law. What happens to the cursed? Christ represents the accursed. Why is the resurrection important? It's tied to the question, what does God do with the cursed? What does God do with the cursed under law? He raises them from the dead. Why is the resurrection important? Because we are sinful and lawless, and as he, we are cursed as he. Jesus represents those cursed under law. What does God do with the cursed? He raises them from the dead. How do we know? Christ was raised from the dead. He's not a substitute. He's a representative. The resurrection is God's decision about the fate of the lawless and the accursed. Does that mean everyone who is sinful, everyone who was accursed on this planet is going to heaven? It does not. There needs to be belief. What is the basis of your belief? That you're better than most? That you're kind of cursed and kind of sinful, but we're all sinful and we're all cursed, the basis of our confidence, our belief, is that through faith in Christ, what's true of Jesus is true of us. We die with him, are buried with him, are raised with him, and the reason we can have confidence that ten seconds, two seconds after we die, We will be conscious of being with him. The reason that that faith has firmness and concrete validity is that Jesus rose from the dead. And what happened to him is going to happen to us. Guess what? They couldn't find the body. That's our confidence. The faith, the Christian faith is based in fact, not just Theories, not just hopes. That's what makes it difference. That's what makes it different. Um, if you are charged with a crime, the same crime as someone being tried, I guarantee if you're sitting in that courtroom and the same judge that's going to decide your case is deciding the case of someone who did exactly what you did. You are going to be all eyes and all ears because what happened to this guy is probably going to happen to you. And that's why the resurrection is significant. Jesus represents sin and lawlessness. He represents the cursed. So it's like lawless is written on him. Cursed is written on him, and we take our place, and we're looking, and we're just, I wonder what's, boy, you know, what's going to happen. He's in the same place. He's, the judge is deciding for him, and I'm up next, and I wonder what he's going to do. I wonder what he's going to do. Well, he died. But then he was raised. He was raised from the dead. Does that mean what I think it does? That that's going to happen to us, too? Yeah, what's true of him becomes true of us as our representative. Um, The good news of the gospel is this, that in God's eyes, from his perspective, we died, were buried, and raised with Christ. What's true of him is true of me. 
God includes the lawless. How do I know? Christ was raised from the dead. He represents lawlessness. The good news of the gospel is that in God's eyes, from his perspective, we died, were buried and raised with Christ. What's true of him is true of me. God includes the cursed. How do I know? Christ was raised from the dead and he represents the cursed. The resurrection is important because we who are sinful and cursed can have hope, concrete hope. God is not our enemy. He's not our enemy. And he's not angry. How do we know? Christ was raised from the dead. He's our representative. What God has decided for him is what God will decide for me. The fact that it was validated historically makes it incredibly powerful. That's what it says in the last verse, Colossians. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifted from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Do you know what our part is? Hold fast to our faith. Hold on to the basis of our faith and not be moved from the hope held out in the gospel. We've talked about this before. If somebody goes to you and says, okay, God loves you, but he could, he could love you even more if you read not just one verse a day, but ten if you give not just 2%, but 10%. When somebody leads you to believe that you can be more loved and accepted by God on the basis of what you do, you are moving your hope from what Christ did to what you do. And that's what Paul is telling them. Don't let go of that. You need a good yes and a good no. Somebody's going to try to persuade you that God could love you even more and what we're to say, based on the fact that our hope is in Jesus, being died and buried and raised with him, there's nothing we can do, and that's good news, to make ourselves any more beloved. And the reason why that's good news is the Bible indicates that we're enemies in our minds. At some level, we have this sense, for some of us, it's more conscious. For others of us, it's not as conscious. But at some level, we are alienated in our minds and hostile because of our behavior. We look at what we do and we imagine, he can't love me. Why? Because of what I did last week. I knew I shouldn't have done it. I'm not supposed to do it. There was this thing, and I, there was this person, and I treated them in a way. There was this thing on TV, and I watched it. Was it there was this Internet thing, and I doubt there was this thing, and I doubt it. So we look at all the things, well, the things that you're aware of, and what we think, that because of that thing that I did, God can't love me as much. He can't accept me as much. Look what I did. And what God would have us to do is look from there, okay, you hold on to that. 
Don't try to get rid of it. Don't try to excuse it. It was wrong. You know what we'd have us believe? There's hope for the sinful. There's hope for those who don't do everything written in the book of the law. There's hope for those who covet. There's hope for those who commit adultery. There's hope for those who steal. There's hope for those who bear false witness against their neighbor. There's hope for those who covet. There's hope. How do we know? What's the basis of this hope? Jesus is our representative. He represents the sinful, the lawless, the cursed. And what did God do with him? He raised him from the dead. Do you believe that Jesus came? And do you believe that God will do to you what he did with Jesus? On the basis of that faith, rooted in the resurrection, that's what it means to be a Christian, to hold on to the faith. Okay, I know I do those things. But I've seen and I know what God does with the lawless and the accursed. Because Jesus, you understand, you get it now. He's not just substitute, representative. And that roots our faith in something historical and concrete. It makes it very powerful. Same closing song. Well, we look at the resurrection and we want to understand why it's as significant as it is. There's a lot of ways to try to understand it. You would have us see things from your eyes. So easy for us to gaze at our behavior and glance at you, to gaze at what we do and glance at what you are telling us. I believe you're sending a very strong message from the cross and the empty tomb. You're telling us about your judicial decisions of those who break the commandments, find themselves under law, sinful, lawless, find themselves accursed. You're telling us something from the cross and the empty tomb that you want us to see. Like, listening carefully to how a judge pronounces sentence on somebody that does the same thing. It's that. You would have us to believe that you are not our enemy. It's very difficult to trust someone that is feared. You would not have, you would have us not fear your judgment. And that's what the cross and the empty tomb tell us. Yeah, and this, these are things that take time to sink into our heads. But as we continue to try to gaze at you and your commitments to us, I pray that you'd continue to foster in our mind the, the sense of how you actually feel about us, moving us from a sense of being your enemy to being sons and daughters of a father who cares, who can be trusted. In Jesus' name, amen.